Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode is brought to you by Buyers Agency Australia. And it was just a, you know, an oldish and quite an old rundown house in Punchbowl. Um, you know, renovated it a bit and rented it out. And I really had no interest because I guess at that at that point in my life, I was just wanting to have fun, <laughs> you know, go out. Um, you know, I didn't want to have a mortgage uh, debt at, at that point. So, in a way, my start in property investment was very reluctant <laughs> and had to be pushed. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Chi Lam, devoted husband, father, director and founder of his own company. His earliest memories are something most of us can't even imagine which is to escape from Vietnam as refugees on a small boat but using his resilience and strength, he came out the other end, all the better for it. Chi Lam is the embodiment of having your cake and eating it too. However, that's not to say he hasn't overcome his fair share of challenges. His childhood was less than perfect and contained some harrowing experiences many of us could never dream of. Today, he runs a business and is a full-time hands-on dad to his kids, proving you really can have it all. My title at the moment is a, a director of a company that I, uh, I founded. Um, that was the side business, uh, which was originally a side hustle. And now it's pretty much my full-time thing, although my, my time during the week is split um, into various things. Um, I'm the primary carer of, 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 of my girls. Uh, I've got two girls, so you know I'm the one that picks them picks them up from school, uh, drops them off, uh, take them to after school activities and all that sort of stuff. So my wife works full time. So I, you know, I, I, my, my time is very much split uh, as to what's needed. The, the business has its, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a case of uh, how much time I can put into it is, is what I get back. So, and, and there's no, you know, nine to five with the business. So it's just obviously when orders come in, um, you, I have to deal with those um, fairly quickly. But apart from that, yeah, the time's very flexible. And that's one of the advantages, I guess, of, of, of what I've currently got going. Thanks to his unconventional approach to work and family, no two days ever look the same for Lamb. There's no real typical day, you know, like, like as I say. But like generally speaking, uh, since I'm the one that um, drops the kids off, I, I need to get them ready. Um, so get them ready in the morning. Um, I'm very, I'm, I'm focused on fitness these days and, and personal health. So after that, I, you know, I, I might do a bit of work, um, kind of catch up on any sort of urgent sort of work with the business. Then I... I, I go and I do a bit of um, uh, yoga or you know some or, or, or some gym work, uh, and then um, usually get back into sort of more business stuff until you know. And depending on the day, I might go and play uh, some touch footy with some friends of mine, ex workmates of mine. Yep. So I like to stay active. 
Yeah, yeah, around lunchtime. Um, so you know, we we go, we we have like a a local touch footy um gathering every Tuesdays and Fridays. So you know, if you, if if the weather's good and we get enough people, we we all just rock up at at a field in Bella Vista and just play some touch footy. It's fantastic. Yeah. You know, it gets it, it gets the blood pumping and yeah, it's it, it just um yeah we 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 all really look forward to it. Um, and then after that, it's just yeah either a bit, a bit more work and then you know um picking them up after school activities dinner and that's generally the kind of um uh, the the school uh, week um yeah and when when it's school holidays it's it's completely like random it could be whatever the business and all and and kind of work takes a backseat um in a way yeah. during school holidays so it's a lot of the cases it's just like if if you know if we've arranged play dates um which with with the their friends or then you know I need to be there. Or I need to take them there, whatever. Or, or the kids come over. <laughs> I need to supervise. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a it's it's all a mixed bag when it comes to school holidays. Lam was born and raised in Vietnam for the first six years of his life. Those formative years coincided with some of Australia's darkest times, and ultimately saw his family make the decision to leave the country. I still have, I guess, you know, some memories of it. Um, and then uh, we we escaped uh, Vietnam uh, communism, I guess, after the war uh, as as boat refugees, um, and spent about a well, it was it was quite a treacherous sort of um, five day boat journey, uh, and we we eventually got to um, Malaysia, where we spent about a year uh, in the refugee camp in, in Malaysia. So I've got memories of that as well. Can we can we talk a little bit about that? So first six years when you were born in, in Vietnam, because you, you would have been quite young. It's amazing that you remember a lot of that. Can you just explain to us like what was the feeling when you were actually, you know, having to be have to leave Vietnam because of the war? Like I was quite young, right? So I was six, and I and I wouldn't say I have a lot of memories of it. It's more uh, moments of, and in particular, kind of the the journey. Maybe because it was quite impactful, even at that age. Um, how did I feel at, at that age? Like you know, as a kid, you're a passenger in, in, in life type thing. You, you get carried along, you know, your parents take you wherever they want and you're just along for the ride. Um, but I do remember things like, um, you know, uh, leaving the country in the middle of the night, um, like uh, going out into somewhere, <laughs> pitch, pitch black um, on, on bicycles uh, and and kind of, or, or, or scooters, I, I don't remember exactly, um, you know, getting on into a dinghy um out into, out to the bigger sort of fishing boat, which is the, the vessel that we uh, eventually came out of, um, kept, well, left Vietnam with in. <laughs> it was it, it was kind of like your typical fishing vessel that you see, um, you know, at, at, when you see news articles of uh, boat people coming to Australia. Um, everyone everyone's crammed into the like the hull. I remember all that. I remember a fair bit about the trip actually. So it must have been quite, I guess, traumatic um, for me to remember some of that um, and. You know, remembering how squishy, how hot, the smell of diesel, uh, nausea because I was seasick, and I think I was actually also ill from some sort of ill, uh, like you know, cold or flu or whatever. Um, for most of that journey, actually, so um, I remember things like you know the um, the waves, the, the the crazy big waves, and 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 being a naive little six year old, I was asking mum, why are the waves so big or something like that, something along those lines, and. <laughs> And you know, I can imagine that for the adults, they must have been terrified. Like it's if, if the ocean, you know, you've seen how big the ocean can be, and you're in this little 11, 12 meter um, fishing vessel that, yeah, just getting sloshed about. Um, Do you remember asking mum and dad why you're on this vessel? I don't remember the exact 
that like yeah i don't remember asking them that but it's more of a yeah i don't know as kids maybe you just don't question that <laughs> um yeah but i I, you know, I do remember being scared which is the weird thing like being that's probably the first memory of being it's almost like um i don't know if it's too young to even make to have to have these feelings of being scared for your life if that's even possible at, at the age of six yeah like it's like you're just scared because <laughs> you know this is not right um but i guess as a kid you know kind of yeah, it, the, the memories is just kind of fleeting. I guess it's just, yeah. I have I have memories of moments. Um, um, yeah, and then, yeah, and and just but like the, the the memories in Vietnam were just um some of them were just like quite night quite good. You know, I remember I had like a little uh, Bruce Lee toy, <laughs> um, balloons. I remember that place kind of roughly the where we lived. And as a child, geez, our house in Vietnam um felt so big. When we when I went back there many years later, it's like tiny. <laughs> so I've, I've got a, just little memories of of, of um, my life back in Vietnam. It was quite you know, it was quite nice. But yeah, the 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 journey, the the refugee journey, was quite uh, harrowing, I guess. Um, the trip from Vietnam to Malaysia took about five days, and although Lam's memory of it are hazy, the trip made a huge impact on his family. It was pretty rough on everyone. Um, on the ship because uh you know i think things like food was rationed um water was rationed it's a case of you don't really know how long or you they kind of do but you you, you you always prepare for the worst just in case there's not enough you know if you get um lost at sea you don't know how much how long the food or the water's going to last um i don't know when we got attacked by the pirates um it's but i think at some uh, initially it started as uh contact with some boats uh, this is what mum told me. Okay, so I, I, um, I think she said that the there were initially boats which then um, contacted us and then realised that we were not um, that we were refugees and and we were I guess um, easy targets for for the uh, I believe they were Thailand fishermen um, who kind of you know it was probably more profitable to to, to, to rob refugees than to, to to fish at that time because there were a lot of um, refugees. Um, doing what we were doing, uh, you know, paying uh, to escape the country and kind of carrying with them as um, as much gold or, or, or US dollars or whatever that, that you, you can kind of liquidate in Vietnam without raising suspicion because you don't want to be, because, you know, the, the government wouldn't let you leave, obviously, they and, and they would capture you. Um, uh, and I think we had a failed attempt earlier on too because I, I remember not um, one time we tried to go and it's uh, we came back in the middle of the night um, kind of went on a journey to nowhere. <laughs> and as a kid, I probably asked my mum, um, what, 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 like, you know, I remember what, what was going on there. Well, why did we come back? I thought we were going somewhere, <laughs> but I think that was a failed attempt. Um, anyway, so going back to the, um, the refugee, uh, trip, uh, after they, they made contact, they kind of realized we weren't, we were just refugees. Cause I think our ship was painted in military colors to try and deceive any sort of pirates, but that didn't, so it didn't work. No. So they realised we were a refugee boat, and then not long later we were surrounded um, by, I don't know, I think Mum said like six or twelve or something. Like, like we were surrounded. I don't, I don't know exactly, but we were surrounded by these boats, and they just basically boarded us, um, robbed everyone on board. Um, I, my mum said they even took a few of the women um, onto their boat. I don't know what happened um, after that. Uh, they, I think my mum said they ruined the engine. Um, my auntie said they they pushed my mum at one point and she almost fell into this hole in, in, in the boat like 
kind of like into the engine bay or something like she must and, and my auntie was quick enough to kind of save her like just grab onto her before she fell um and i guess luckily they they didn't kill us and they just kind of left us um i believe they left us uh with uh with a broken engine or something that so, so the boat couldn't couldn't go anywhere um and we were just floating um and i think later on another boat um, came by and they were a bit more friendly um, yeah. and they helped us out I believe this is all kind of what my mum's told me and um, yeah and f- helped us maybe fix the engine and point us you know in the right direction gave us rations too because I remember at one point we started we started eating oh well <laughs> I remember like uh, you know congee fish congee I remember like really fishy congee uh, eating that um, and yeah it's and, and so we were on our way and I think we eventually made it to Malaysia and that was a nice moment, you know, hitting the, the the beach, and and then it's almost like once you get there. I remember that first night we got there, my mum and my 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 aunties were like, you know, catching up with people that they may have even known back in Vietnam who had made it you know, into the camp. Whereas us kids, we were like, uh, we were so tired. I think we just fell asleep at the table. I'm sitting on the edge of my seat, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, you'd be crying as soon as you laugh because of sense of like, you know, we made it. We we didn't die. We we got over the line to arrive in Malaysia. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's you know, my the fact that my mum and and my parent, um, my dad and aunties all kind of went on this trip, even though my mum had already lost siblings on a previous trip. Um, I think a few years earlier they. They went and no no sign was heard from them, so they were presumed drowned um, at sea. And yeah, like it's you know it's, it kind of goes to show maybe at that point in time how bad the situation was in Vietnam for or, or the, how bad the prospects uh, for the future was for for people that they they were going to yeah this was worth it even though it was a, it was risking life and death. Um, and talking to my mum nowadays, she said yeah it's it's hard to believe that she made that decision back then, but she probably forgot how bad it was. He recognises that things could have turned out completely different than how they did and he's eternally grateful that they had the opportunity to start anew in Australia. It's one of those moments where you, it's like a sliding doors moment, right? Where we, your parents made a decision one way or the other and that, I think, affected our lives tremendously. Um, we had, you know, after coming to Australia, plenty of opportunities here, peaceful country, love, you know, people are great. Um, growing up with lots of opportunities to be successful in life, um, I think those those opportunities were being uh, very much diminished um, back in Vietnam, uh, and 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 you see that when you go back, um, kind of you know how how hard um, our life can be in Vietnam, um, yes. and it, a lot of it depends on kind of the family that you're born into in a way. Um, so yeah, it's like if if even if you're a you know brilliant and 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 great uh, like you know very very capable. Um, your opportunities are obviously a lot less in Vietnam compared to Australia. Coming up after the break, Lam discusses how they ended up in Australia. So then it was a case of just getting the paperwork processed and they would just then, um, yeah, they, they would just fly us. Like once everything was done, um, they'd fly us from Malaysia to Australia. The moment that grounded him and helped him buckle down. It was a big uh, moment, kind of. I remember the first test where I accepted, where I failed, and I was like, "Wow, okay, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not as uh, clever as I thought I was." <laughs> he explains how, despite being reluctant to get into property initially, it shows that mothers always knows best. It wasn't until we came back that um, I really started thinking seriously about property investment. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum, and you're listening to Property Investory. Story. 
Do you find yourself stressed out not knowing how or where to find the best property deals? Or what the best strategy is to build a wealth generating portfolio? Well, Dragon Dominski can help you while you save time and money. With about two decades of experience as an investor and expert buyer's agent, he finds positively geared properties with development potentials and secures and negotiates off-market deals for his clients. Now, he's offering you a no-obligation 45-minute strategy call to get you started. Just simply text the code BAA with your name and email address to 0405-105-074 to get your no-obligation free 45-minute strategy call. After arriving in Malaysia, his mother and the other refugees were given a choice to some degree of where to migrate to. Australia, the US and Canada were all possibilities and it was the pool of family that brought them to Australia. Fewer uh, like women and children sort of group like, my, like me, my sisters and my aunties were, you kind of get high priority than if you're a single male sort of thing. Um, we had an uncle who went before us, they, they chose a I think they got sponsored over by some an Australian couple or something to Australia. Um, so they, they they came over to Australia a few years before, um, and so we decided we would follow him. I guess my mum. I think my mum had a choice, even maybe even America or even Canada, but she decided to go to Australia with this uncle. Um, so then it was a case of just getting the paperwork processed, and they would just then. Um, yeah, they, they would just fly us, like once everything was done, um, they, they'd fly us from Malaysia to Australia. So that part of the journey was was nice. <laughs> I still remember the first time being on a plane. It's like, um, you know, you, you probably see it as a kid. You, you expect to walk up to the plane and look at and, and climb up the ladder. But I think it was one of those, you know, those the, the passageway that you don't really get to see the plane. Yeah, I remember sitting down on the on the, on the seat and asking mum, mum, are we on the plane? <laughs> like I wasn't sure. Like I, I thought I was expecting, the, the expectations were different. <laughs> um so yeah, that, that was very uneventful. Like just coming to Australia by plane was just normal. After living through so many changes already in his short life, Lamb arrived in Australia at the age of seven and went into school at the end of year two. We lived in Marrickville at the time. Um, I think we initially, we, I think we, we pretty much lived with our uncle. <laughs> um, I, I don't think we were allowed to because <laughs> I remember when the landlady, uh, landlord lady came around to collect rent, we would all have to hide. <laughs> while we went to the door and paid the landlady, uh, landlord um uh yeah so uh, but eventually we got a, a flat uh, we, we uh, my, my mum and auntie rented a flat in marrickville um and and i went to marrickville west public at the time um first yeah first three uh so year two year three and year four so that would have been about 86 or 86 87 88 around then yeah Starting school in a new country where everything was new and different certainly isn't easy, especially for a young refugee who doesn't speak the local language. Yeah, it was a big, I guess, shock uh, in a way. Um, first day of school, I remember that, not not knowing, not speaking the language at all, not really understanding what everyone is saying. Um, that was quite hard in a way. Um, my, they, I was in a class where there was a girl who spoke Cantonese and they got her to kind of show me around the first day or so and, and that was really nice, yeah. Um, I think the school knew that we were refugees or, or you know, obviously because we were coming in midterm and didn't speak a word of English. <laughs> um, but I remember um, initially probably around probably the first, you know, few months, um, 
yeah, just being a bit lonely um, because I didn't have many friends. Um, I think the language barrier would have, and also coming in midterm, right, there, there would have been established friendship groups, um, even at U2. Um, and so I do remember times where I was just walking around the playground by myself, <laughs> a bit bored. Um, yeah, a bit, <laughs> bit sad. Um, but I think by about year three, I had formed um, uh, friends. I had met, um, had some good friends who I then, yeah, you know, we played at, 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 uh, at lunchtime. I was in ESL for about a year, I think. Uh, so all of year two and then year three as well. Uh, and I think as my English got better and I started to kind of fit into the culture here and yeah, it just felt normal. It's, it's not a unique story in that I, you know, when, when, when I read uh, Ando's book um, about how he came over, very similar. Um, and and I think for a lot of uh, Vietnamese um, Australians, that it's all very, yeah, it's, it's a very common story that gets told around people around kind of my age around that time. The transitions didn't end there as Lam's family moved around Sydney several times starting from the end of primary school. They moved from Marrickville to Greenacre where he attended the Selective Sefton High. At the time, the whole selective process wasn't um, probably as, as big as it is nowadays or as competitive. Um, but that was, yeah, that was, that was an interesting experience. Um, kind of, <laughs> it, was, it was a bit of a shock in, in that, you know. I would do quite well at, uh, I was doing quite well in primary school in terms of academics and then going to a selective school where you kind of see how um, academically <laughs> um, great everyone was. <laughs> and it kind of, it kind of, uh, it was a, it was a big uh, moment kind of, I remember the first test where I, at Sefton where I failed and then it was like, wow, okay, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not as clever as I thought I was. <laughs> and it was a grounding moment. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, I went, I went to school in Sefton. Um, then my parents moved again. Uh, it, so we spent about five years living in Mount Druitt from about year 10 to about third year uni. Um, so yeah, so I moved around Sydney a fair bit. Do you know why, why parents continue to move around Sydney? I think Marrickville to Greenacre was kind of, um, they went from a flat to a house. So they, so they worked quite hard um, to save up. Um, and I think at the time the interest rates were bloody expensive too. Like they went a lot higher than it was today. They would, uh, my mum would say, yeah, they, they would work long hours um, doing kind of work that's uh, sewing, um, basic. So, you know, uh, piece, piece work. So every every garment they sew, they get like 20 cents or something. Um, and um, <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and so they'd save them enough where they bought a house in, in Greenacre. And I think the move from Greenacre to Mount Druitt was kind of uh, a, a bit of a split between my mum and my auntie. They might, yeah, probably arguments of, some sort and they kind of wanted to sep- um, go separate ways and they didn't have, when they when they sold the house in Greenacre they didn't have enough to buy back in Greenacre <laughs> so they had to go further out west and the only place we could afford was out in Mount Druitt so we lived out there um, and Mount Druitt was very different <laughs> from what it was today um, it was pretty rough back then um, and uh, yeah so the travel from yeah Mount Druitt to high school to Sefton was quite a quite a trek in the morning and, and eventually even to uni you know all the way to the city that was quite a trek By the end of year 12, Lam wasn't sure what he wanted to study at university. He chose to focus on an area that interested him, which was computers. I picked uh, computer engineering, uh, computer systems engineering at UTS, um, and I managed to just scrape in, I think. <laughs> My TR just got me into that course based on the previous year's uh, cutoff. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's 
that's what I did for it, it was it was a it was a sandwich course actually. So meaning that you had to do like full time semesters of study followed by um, full time semesters of work, which uh, was industry experience they call it, and it's what you had to f- um, find. Um, and then yeah, so it's just like sandwiching. Uh, work with study so that by the end of six five and a half years um, you could come out and 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 say that you've got one and a half year oh yeah one and a half years of uh, industrial experience so it's only a four-year degree and that sounded good at the time yeah it was, it was I mean it has, it has its positives and negatives too I think um, it, it is a long time to be in uni but uh, be studying and I think com- <laughs> you had companies where even though you came out with industrial experience they in terms of let's say um, paying you a certain salary, they they would say, well, that doesn't really count because that's like industri- that's ex- that's like work experience. That's not uh, you know industry experience. So they yeah. So there was a little bit of that, I, I think. And so friends who did like I had friends who did um, computer science who was a, well, that was only like a three year degree. Um, by the time I graduated, they'd already had three years of work experience, right? And they and, and, and they would be on much higher wages and things like that. <laughs> so you felt like, oh god, I spent six years. Um, doing this and I come out and I'm just a graduate <laughs> type thing. During his studies, he learned that he had an interest in the biomedical technology side of computers, which is using technology in the medical field. So I did a sub-major at, at UTS on biomedical technology and when I graduated, um, I ended up, uh, I got a job at uh, ResMed. Um, it's, yeah, it's it's a, it's a relatively um, big Australian bio, uh, so medical device company. Um, and pretty much my career, like that, that, that was, you know, and ever since then, I was pretty much always in the um, medical devices industry. Um, so I went from like ResMed uh, to, I think, VentraCore at one stage um, after ResMed and then um, Cochlear. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's, that's a bit later. <laughs> Lam was keen to see more of the world and explore it on his own terms after he graduated from university. I did what um, what, what most people uh, around my age at that time were doing, which was going to like a, a spend a couple of years in London um, on a working holiday visa. So that's exactly what I did. Um, and it's, um, so after after my stint at VentraCore, um, I think I was in my mid twenties at the time. Um, decided, well, actually no, probably a little more late twenties. Yeah, it was like, you know, kind of seen enough of Sydney and gone a bit bored, <laughs> um, decided to do what my friends were all kind of doing. And so we all went over there um, and and just kind of uh, worked and travelled as much of Europe as we could. Um, yeah, it was it was a bit difficult because, you know, in London it was, uh, it was very finance orientated. So it was quite hard to kind of get a job that was high paying uh, without that prior finance experience. Um, so I think my travels would have been a lot better if I'd, <laughs> if I'd gotten like a contracting role, uh, in London. Um, but I'd end up getting a, uh, a consultancy kind of permanent role, uh, yeah, with, with a consultant house. Um, the pay wasn't as good, which means we couldn't travel as much, but you know, it was still an amazing experience, um, in terms of like for the first time living away from home, um, just being, feeling like really independent and feeling like an adult. <laughs> In my late 20s. (laughs) Turning to property, he admits that investment wasn't always on his radar. Although he found himself with an investment property somewhat unwillingly, he acknowledges that it was one of the best things that he could have happened to him. I guess when I was younger, I didn't really have that much of an interest in property. And I must, I think my 
my mum and my uh, uncle, who was interested in, in property investment, he they kind of pushed me to buy a, an investment property um, kind of around the, I think it was around, around 2005, um, before we went over to London. Um, and it was just a, you know, an oldish and quite an old rundown house in Punchbowl. Um, you know, renovated it a bit and rented it out. And I really had no interest because I guess at that at that point in my life, I was just wanting to have fun, <laughs> you know, go out. Um, you know, I didn't want to have a mortgage uh, debt at, at that point. So in a way, my start in property investment was very reluctant <laughs> and had to be pushed. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I think everyone, yeah, as you grow older, your, your mindset changes, right? And, and so at that age, I was probably wasn't ready. Um, but I, yeah, I did anyway. But but because I had a job, I was able to get a loan and bought that property. Um, didn't do much of it with it, um, apart from yeah, just doing a reno and rented it out uh, and just kind of left it as is whilst we were in London. Um, and it wasn't until we came back from London when we were you know decided. So I, I went with my girlfriend at the time, um, and then we we got engaged and we came back to Australia to thank you. We got came back to Australia to. Um, get married um, and I guess settle down because by that stage we were kind of, you know, late 20s, like <laughs> early 30s. We're thinking about you know, starting a family and all that. Um, that it wasn't until we came back that um, I really started thinking seriously about property investment. Um, but, yeah, even when we came back, so, so even after we came back from from London, we, we, we bought an apartment uh, in, in the city because um, it was close to everything. We didn't have kids at the time, obviously. We just, we just wanted to, you know, a great location. Um, so we bought a one better in Chippendale and, and we lived there. It wasn't until they had their first child that they realized their home was no longer large enough for them. With space in mind, they decided to head out to the Hills District. And, and then kind of, uh, I think around that time is when, when I had children, when I had, had our first um, daughter, that it kind of... What was more, you know, the things that were important to me um, changed. Obviously, uh, family became more of a focus, my, um, and kind of, you know, future, I guess, um, wealth and you know, security and all that sort of thing. Um, and that, that kind of led me from a full time, like, it, it led me away from uh, working uh, in a full time job to wanting to invest more and and to seek uh, wealth via other means. So that's when the property stuff really started uh, kicking off. Um, it was like, I think it was like 2012 um, was when I had a big, and it's interesting because I, I kind of got the inspiration from my mum and what she did with her place in Sefton at the time. She she had a, a, a house on a corner block and she built a granny flat at the back um, and that allowed her to rent out the front. And, and, and I saw that concept and I'm thinking, this is really good. Like if, you know, if, if, if I if I buy investment property um, that's on a corner and I was and, and I'm able to build a granny flat at the back and rent it out like and you can rent it out for good money in Sydney um, yeah particularly one that's on a corner block where it's got its own side entrance like it's, it's, you, you can design it such that it's like a little house in itself right so for an extra you know hundred uh, at the time initially it was only like a hundred hundred twenty k the prices went up over time you know to up to maybe one hundred fifty but even that's not that much. For an extra 100 150k to get an extra three four hundred dollars back in rent um for that entire property kind of made it a very good deal um you couldn't get that sort of returns anywhere um 
So what, what, what I ended up doing was I, I sold the punch bowl place because it wasn't on the corner <laughs> and the front, I wasn't getting enough returns on it. Um, so yeah, I, I basically sold that um, and bought a place in Chester Hill straight away with kind of, yeah. Um, and then in that kind of five year period between 2012 to 2017, um, I was just accumulating as much as I could on that strategy of just buying corner blocks um and 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 doing exactly that like building a granny flat and you know also renovating the front house and then just kind of do like a um a refinance after everything was done to kind of pull out the equity that i'd put in or the, and, the, and the deposit and then move on to the next one he was lucky in that during that time property prices were increasing as a result he was able to keep rolling and accumulated four investment properties in sydney over a five-year period I considered investing in other states at the time as well, but it was just for this strategy, I guess, to work, I wanted to be more intimate and involved in the granny flat builds. Um, and it was always going to be harder to do that interstate. So it was a case of, well, yeah, you know, just, just do it as local as I can. <laughs> I remember at the time I had like, yeah, I was doing all this kind of um, whilst I was working as well. So I remember I had, I had some, I was using real estate and I had, like I had to find these corner blocks, which wasn't easy. <laughs> um, so, no, no. So I, I, I had all these. Um, I, I got like a list of the postcodes in Sydney. I was then able to kind of create um, searches on realestate.com that can give me alerts. Um, I was searching for keywords like corner, um, um, but only in, in the Sydney area. And yeah, and so that kind of helped a lot in, in narrowing down the kind of the properties that I I could I, I'd shortlist and I'd, I'd then use Google Maps and I'd check out their backyard to see how big they are, and I'd measure the distances to kind of see. Oh yeah, that's that, that's that's possible. You know, you can probably put a granny flat in that. Um, so I had like quite certain criteria that needed to be met before I would even then go and look at the property. Yeah, so yeah. so there needed to be a way to automate some of that to um, to make it manageable. A lot of weekend work, a lot of after hours work. Yeah, like um, but it was interesting. Like, like it was. You know, because you're building um, your future, it wasn't, it didn't feel like work. Well, it was work, but uh, it, yeah, I was driven because of that. Lamb's story continues in the next episode of Property Investory. He shares how despite never overpaying, there was one auction experience that threw him for a loop. We got up to a point, it, it had stopped and, and I'd reached my limit and I'd said, okay, well, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I told the agent I was done. Um, but the agent managed to, to kind of convince me to go an extra thousand, right? So I was like, all right, I'll put an extra thousand in. The three-in-one investment, that wasn't quite what it seemed. It's a residentially zoned um, property. Um, it, it, it's a corner block, so it fitted my template of, of being able to put a granny flat on the back. Um, so I was even thinking at the time, potentially could have three incomes. He reveals the surprising investment he made that didn't fit his usual profile, but has paid off significantly. And also, around 2017, we also invested in, 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 a, in a company. And that's next time on Property Investory. Do you find yourself stressed out not knowing how or where to find the best property deals or what the best strategy is to build a wealth generating portfolio? Well, Dragon Dominski can help you. 
while you save time and money. With about two decades of experience as an investor and expert buyer's agent, he finds positively geared properties with development potentials and secures and negotiates off-market deals for his clients. Now, he's offering you a no-obligation 45-minute strategy call to get you started. Just simply text the code BAA with your name and email address to 0405-105-074 to get your no-obligation free 45-minute strategy call.